When we travel, we have an urge to share our experience with others. Some of us share photos and videos to Instagram, others text back and forth with family and friends, and some people blog about their travels or just share travel stories through discussion. Regardless of where we share our travels, we all have a responsibility to share them mindfully. This is because what we post, write, or say about the places we visit have the power to shape perceptions, maintain unfair stereotypes, and perpetuate colonial views. As my online presence in the travel space has grown, I've become increasingly aware of the language and the images that I use when I share my travels. Someone I came across in my learnings about this is Vincy Ho. She is the founder and executive director of Rise Travel Institute, which is a nonprofit organization that has a mission to inspire responsible, impactful, sustainable, and ethical travel through education. Vincy has a background in linguistics, and with her ongoing work in social justice and travel, Katie and I thought she would be the perfect person to chat with about travel language. Is this the first time that you've listened to Curious Tourism, the Responsible Travel Podcast? If so, make sure that you've hit the follow button right now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app, because there is plenty more to come this season. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Instagram at Curious Tourism Pod. You can DM us or email us anytime. All of our contact info is in the episode description. But before we chat with Vincy, we need to catch up with Katie because she recently got back from a very epic trip. Oh. Where did you go? <laughs> Such a nice segue. Um, okay, so I went to Nova Scotia. Yes. And had the best time ever. Like immediately, I can just tell you, it was a solid 15 out of 10. I'm not surprised at all. Uh, it was so Fun. So fun. I had the best time ever. And as you know, I took Via Rail all the way from Brantford to Halifax. That's amazing. It took me 37 hours. So it was one sleep. It was one sleep. Okay. Did you sleep like a total baby? Yes. I slept so well. Train sleeps are like, (laughs) I literally just crave them. They're the best sleeps. You were messaging me this when I was on the train. <laughs> you were like, did you sleep so well? <laughs> like, <laughs> rocks me to sleep. <laughs> it's true, though. I remember, like, when we were in India, we were on the night trains all the time, and I would look forward to them. <laughs> like, we're staying in hotels, but I would literally be like, I'm excited for the night train because I would just have the best sleep of my life. <laughs> yeah, Mark and I stayed overnight. We did not sleep in economy or in business class. We were lucky enough to have a sleeper cabin with a shower, which was epic. I don't think I read the tickets properly when I booked them. I didn't realize that I had booked like a bunk bed for Mark and I. Oh, that's usually all they have. (laughs) We So basically when we walked in the car, all the doors are open as people are like entering their rooms. And some people just keep their door open all the time. And you're like, I feel like I'm invading your privacy, but like, okay. Because also there's good airflow. Yeah, it is for airflow. (laughs) Yeah, we had bunk beds and we had breakfast in the dining car and there was like a lounge car. It was a great time. Very chill. Very, very chill. Honestly, a great way to start the vacation because like sometimes you feel like you're just 
in it immediately when you land and like this new place is just overwhelming. When you're on the train, you can just like simmer into it kind of thing, which was gorgeous. Yeah. Beautiful. It's so stress free because yes. all you got to do is just be there. Just got to show up. So you got there by train. Yes. The trip itself. What were your top three highlights? Okay. So we've talked about this a little bit on the podcast about how I think you and I are similar in that when we travel, we want like a little bit of chill, a little bit of like city life and like kind of an outdoor experience. So that was kind of like what the trip was. So we were in Halifax for like a couple of days. And Kate, did you recommend Yaya Pizza to me? Definitely. Because we went there and demolished an entire margarita pizza that was so incredible and delicious and perfectly crispy. I left them a five-star review. <laughs> oh, this is my new thing now. I leave I leave reviews on Google on Google Maps. <laughs> I have I am level five. <laughs> Wait, but the important question is, did you go on the Halifax side or on the Dartmouth side? So we were mostly on the Halifax side, mm -hmm. and then we did like a little mini drive through Dartmouth just to like check it out. Nice. In Halifax, the places that were like my top favorite, Mark and I had so many just fun days there. So we like obviously just roamed around the city just to see what's going on everywhere. And then we went to this really amazing cocktail bar for happy hour. We went immediately after we went and got pizza. We went there <laughs> to get happy hour oysters. So we got oysters and cocktails and the vibes at this place. It was called The Highwayman. And it was the most perfect bar ever because the music was perfect. The cocktails were so delicious. Like everything was just cute. And then one night, Mark and I, we were going to go to what we were recommended to go to, which was uh, this place called The Lower Deck. And they have like the go-to band that plays on Sundays, but it was like orientation week. So all the students were there and there was like a big outdoor festival happening instead. But on our way there, we walked by this place called Pacifico that had a funk band playing. And we were like, that place looks fun. So that's our backup plan. So we ended up going there because the lower deck was like jam packed. And then so we went to Pacifico, we danced and had cocktails and it was so fun. Another night we went to this brewery slash arcade and accidentally attended a metal show. And that was super fun. And we were still like bopping and awake that night. So then we decided to go to karaoke and had the weirdest karaoke experience ever because nobody was at this karaoke bar. It was literally just Mark and I in our own private room and the whole place was silent. And we were like, well, we're in here. Like, we feel like we need to commit to it. So we had a really good time in Halifax. There's so many fun places to go. It's the it's the city to go if you want to have a nice a nice time. We did go to Lunenburg. We went to Peggy's Cove. Did you see the Blue Nose? I'm not sure. We are looking at it from afar. Yeah, like a big ship with a big ass mast. They all look like big ships <laughs> with big ass masts. <laughs> <laughs> well, the blue nose really stands out, though. <laughs> I'm blue not a ship too. lover like you. I'm like, cool. That's no, about <laughs> my like relative was was like a person on that ship. Oh, There's a record of this. That's so cool. I feel I've like definitely I just told you this. Trashing on your Lunenburg is literally my home. Like, like is my it? family's from there originally. I, I, we yeah. got so much art when we were in there. When we were there to bring home. It was so fun to just walk around and like look at everything. It's Katie, just this cool is why place. I wear the Lunenburg shirt. I've never noticed that. 
My father would be so upset if he heard this discussion. Well, we had a lovely time. <laughs> we had a really Did you nice know time. that it's one of the best preserved like villages yes. in Nova Scotia? Okay, yes, yeah. I knew this. I knew the historical significance <laughs> of it being like a UNESCO World Heritage Site and everything. <laughs> and then guess where we went after we went to Lunenburg? For lobster. Yes, we went and got a lobster supper at the Shore Club. And we were so bloated afterward. <laughs> oh, yeah. This is the travel information everyone needs to know. If you're going to go travel for lobster, be prepared to be so gassy. Because <laughs> yeah. we did a lobster boil at my friend's parents' place. That's where we went like kind of our first night. And Mark and I could not stop tooting all night. <laughs> I have no regrets. <laughs> you haven't even said anything about Cape Breton. Cape Breton was awesome. We stayed in a yurt in Cape Breton at this like hilarious resort that was seemingly completely run by teenagers. But that's <laughs> it was just so funny. Uh, but yeah, Cape Breton was amazing. We went whale watching there. We saw like a huge pod of pilot whales. We went to Chetty Camp. Did you drive the whole Cabot Trail? Yeah, we drove the whole thing. Nice. But we only saw half of it because the other half of it was all fog. Yeah. I always tell people, like, if you're going to Cape Breton, add, like, double the amount of time you think you need. Because if you've one bad weather day, it's just, like, it's kind of like Iceland. Like, yeah. you, you might just don't know the what thing. the weather will be. <laughs> and if you have, like, one or two bad weather days, you just won't see anything. <laughs> uh, okay. I feel like we have talked quite enough. <laughs> Wait, but I think you should summarize like top yes. three highlights. Okay. Number one, go to Pacifico and watch the Melotones. Okay. Dance party there, best band, definitely in the top three. I would also say, this is in no particular order, but another top thing was Lobster Supper at the Shore Club. 1,000% worth it. And also the dessert was sublime. Okay. I'm surprised there's nothing on Cape Breton. Nothing is on Cape Breton because we spent the least amount of time there. Mm. So didn't get to know it as well as the other places. But I would say the other top thing was when we were in Lawrencetown, which I haven't talked about yet. We stayed four days in Seaford slash Lawrencetown, which is the surfing capital of Nova Scotia. And just staying there was awesome. And I would recommend the bunkie that we stayed in. I would recommend the area that we stayed in. We had the best time literally staying in our bunkie. We did over 16 crossword puzzles in our bunkie. We were just chilling, having a nice time. We rode our bikes all the way to the beach. We got to swim in the North Atlantic. We got to enjoy some classic Donaire. So just like staying in that area of Nova Scotia, I would just say is a full experience in itself. So those are my top three. Love it. Hi, Vincy. Hello, Erin. Thanks for joining us. I'm so excited to chat with you. Thank you for having me on your show. I'm very excited to be chatting with you too. So to start, I'm really curious about your path to becoming the founder of an organization that's dedicated to responsible tourism. How did you first become interested in responsible tourism? Was there an aha moment or a moment where it just started to become important to you? I would say there were definitely quite a few of aha moments mm -hmm. <laughs> in the past uh, 10, 15 years or so of, you know, my 
traveling, I became interested in responsible tourism when I when I realized how irresponsible I once was as a traveler. <laughs> so you know, like elephant riding, I did a few times, and it it is absolutely outrageous now that I look back, and I'm surprised and and appalled. You know how. As an animal lover, yearning for the connection with animals, I did not notice all the scars on their heads, and you know, caused by the sharp hooks, and how they are chained when they are not "quote unquote" in service. So that was definitely one of those moments. I remember back in 2010, I was working in Senegal for a refugee nonprofit, and I took a few days off to travel from Dakar to Saint Louis. And on the way there, we drove past the tribal village. Living in tents, and we got off our four by four and basically intruded or invaded the village uninvited. And then the next thing was, you know, we were taking pictures of them and with them. And I believe we even gave them some money,、um, assuming they were poor and probably wanted to make ourselves, you know, feel better. And they never said they wanted our money. You know, it was so wrong on so many levels. And at the time, I just realized something was wrong, but I couldn't quite articulate what that was. So I had to think about it and reflect. And then afterwards, there was another、um, another experience too, which was also an aha moment when I joined a volunteer program in Rwanda, led by a Western、uh, volunteerism organization. It was very trendy, you know. Ten, fifteen years ago, I was placed in an orphanage, and again, it sounds terrible right now, you know, looking back. But back then, I believed that was something everybody should be doing, you know, like quote unquote giving back while traveling. And not until the few weeks I was there did I realize that not only I did I have nothing special to offer, <laughs> the volunteerism company was making a huge profit of white saviorism, and、yeah. the whole experience was extremely voyeuristic. And I was there taking pictures with the kids. I still have those pictures, <laughs>、um, teaching them English. And then after a few weeks, they they bonded with me, and and then I had to go. And then new volunteers came in, and the cycle repeated. You know, all the mistakes that I made were either、um, unintentional or even with good intentions. But still, it's not an excuse, right?、Uh, I realized that ignorance is not an excuse, and we can all do better、um, and foster more meaningful experiences during our travels in a much more ethical way. So then, when I moved to America, I. It started to work with good travel, and、uh, I started to learn more about how to use travel or tourism as a force for good, like the real good, instead of just saying that you know we are traveling to help the world. And so, like with her and、um, and good travel and the team of amazing women, I, I learned along the way that. Responsible travel or responsible tourism is not just about like wanting to give back while you travel. There's so so many nuances to what that even means. And then I also worked with Impact Travel Alliance with Kelly Louise, and、uh, I definitely learned a lot from、uh, the process as well. So in the past ten years, little by little, I kind of like made my way into sustainable travel,、uh, the sustainable travel realm, and I wanted to. Write a curriculum to kind of inspire travelers to 
to talk about these things and and also reflect upon their own travels, like I did, which is which is how I started Rise Travel Institute two three years ago. Amazing! Your experience is so relatable because I also. In the past, have done、mm-hmm. things that, like, I now recognize, were not responsible in my own travels. I actually think it's like a path that a lot of people take because a lot of people I talk in the responsible tourism space say this that they like had experiences that just didn't feel right to them, and that's when they started to sort of question. The way that they were traveling and the impact that that was having, I love that you brought up volunteerism because I actually like recently had a video go viral on TikTok about volunteerism, and I was so surprised at all the comments of people below the video saying that they had participated in volunteerism, but during their experience doing it. They were like something feels wrong about this, and so it's sort of like it's marketed to you as this experience. But then when you're on it, I think a lot of people nowadays, when they're actually having that experience, start to recognize like, oh, I don't know about this. <laughs> so I noticed a lot of the people that were speaking up in the comments of that video were people who had actually participated in volunteerism, which I find really interesting. Absolutely, and I think that. But、that's very relatable to the topic that we talk about today. It's not in our intention to cause harm, but sometimes we're just not realizing what we're doing that could have an impact on other people. Hmm. I love that we're going to talk about language today because this is something I think about so much, like the communications aspect of tourism. Because I think like some of the ignorance that people have in their travel practices is because of all this communications that's going on、yep. um, through marketing and through other venues、mm-hmm. that sort of make you feel like this experience is good and and worth doing. But I wanted to start by talking about how travel today has been shaped by a long colonial history. From my own reading, I found that before leisure travel really took off in the 20th century, most world travel was simply colonialism.、Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think today, travel writing, even the way that we talk about and share our travels, has been shaped by that colonial history. So, for example, the earliest travel writings came from the field notes of colonizers as far back as the 13th century, who wrote about their travels. So, with your educational background and your experience in linguistics, as well as your work in social justice, Katie and I thought you would be the perfect person to talk with about travel language. Could you explain why we should be cognizant of how we talk and share the places that we travel to? Especially nowadays, we're in 2023 with the evolution of social media. Everyone who travels is, in a way or another, a travel writer. And as of today, like more than one billion people worldwide、uh, are using Instagram, and even more so、um, are even uh, are using TikTok. Like you know, Erin, you yourself、um, are a TikTok user, and, and then there are countless Facebook groups, and and then there are self-identified travel writers who have blogs and vlogs and podcasts, and so millions of people, trained or untrained writers, socially conscious or not,、um, are sharing the content, sharing their own travel stories. Uh, from their own perspectives, every single day, and not everyone realizes that they have an immense power to influence their readers or followers, especially those who have never been to those places that we that they talked about, and that's their first impression about these places and the people who live in those in these places, right? So, so we have this power to influence what people think. 
And we need to make sure that we're doing the place and the people justice, you know, the, that we write about. So I still remember when, um, I think it was before I started Rise, I was a member of a few Facebook groups uh, for avid travelers or people who love to travel. And some groups have more than like tens of thousands of members. And it's not uncommon to see someone say, oh, I absolutely hate country X, country Y, country Z. Oh, yeah, uh, <laughs> I know. I just, I found that incredibly unfair to write an entire country of, to badmouth an entire country and entire people and discourage people from going just because of an unpleasant personal experience while traveling. And I'm sure everyone has had like very unpleasant experiences back home throughout our lives anyway. So does that mean that people should never come visit? No. And it's also so unfair to judge when, when you don't even know the historical, political or social context of the country you're traveling to and the conditions people live in and the challenges and injustices that they're fighting every single day. So when we get there as a short-term tourist, observing things through our own lens, shaped by our own worldview um, and an unconscious bias without understanding why things are how they are, then then feel the entitlement to, to generalize about the country or people, that's, that's really irresponsible and unjust. So if we're not cognizant of the language we use when, when we talk about a place or a people, we risk re- misrepresenting them and we risk perpetuating um, stereotypes, biases, and, and causing harm. We have a huge responsibility in terms of like what we share on the internet and what we share through our writing or like our photos as well. Absolutely. I think it's so easy to forget like how powerful language really is, Absolutely. especially when people see these repeated messages, these generalizations and these biases that get like repeated through all these little messages. It may seem like nothing, but when you combine them all, it can really shape someone's perception of a place. And hence change people's lives for the worse. <laughs> Absolutely. And the frustrating thing is like these generalizations, like they're rooted in misunderstanding mm-hmm. of a place. <laughs> So we've talked about why it's important to be mindful of how we talk about our travels. Now let's focus more on how we choose specific words. So some words that we use in travel can convey colonial undertones. I was hoping you could give us some examples of those words and explain why using them can be harmful. So I think before we take a closer look at some examples of words and expressions that convey colonial undertones or even some even outright oppressive. I just wanted to make sure that we're on the same page with our listeners on a, on a couple of things. First of all, English is obviously not my native language, and I've spent 40 years, 40 something years learning it, and I'm still learning every day. But I wanted, wanted to say uh, that even for native speakers, there are words that we didn't consider as offensive maybe five years ago, and now all of a sudden we're told that they're offensive. And our job is to understand why they are offensive or oppressive and the harm that they could cause, and then just learn not to use them anymore. 
Or I recognize that this is a hard process of unlearning, and from my perspective as a linguist, it is certainly incredibly difficult <laughs>、uh, because for decades where we've acquired the language systems that that you know the the systems of the languages that we know and how they intersect with、uh, social constructs that we've also internalized, but that does not give us the excuse to continue to perpetuate harm because all it takes for us is. To be more mindful with the words that we use. So, just two decades ago, it was totally okay to use the term "third world," for example, and now it's it's unacceptable. And the term "developing countries" is generally accepted because that's what the UN uses. And the global north and global south, the the north south divide is is not entirely accurate, but that's what we use to distinguish between historical colonial. Powers or like the present economic powers, as opposed to the rest of the world, is it the most ideal way of referring to countries? Maybe not, but this is the kind of language that we're working with right now, and language keeps evolving. So maybe like a few years down the road, we'll come up with better terms, more ethical terms、uh, that will be able to、uh, represent the countries in a more just way. I'm going to share a few examples of words or expressions that are either. Um, that either have colonial roots or implications that are exclusionary. I personally have retired using most of them, but it doesn't mean that you should never use any of them because sometimes it also depends on the context,、uh, and in some contexts it is maybe okay or more neutral to use certain words. So the first couple of words that I think that come to mind would be discover or the. Explore, like clearly, like the word discovery <laughs> has its colonial roots. Columbus like discovered the Americas, but hey, like indigenous peoples have been the inhabitants of the Americas before the arrival of European settlers and and African slaves in the 15th century. So, so like people were already living. Here, where we're talking right now, where we're living right now. So to use the word "discover," it's almost like, hey, like dismissing the fact that people live there already. So the word "discover" has this colonial undertone, and and which is why I usually would avoid using it. And then there are obviously like the. <laughs> The word conquer. <laughs> hey,、oh. I've, I've conquered the summit of Mount Everest, and then I like physically erect a flag, you know, of my country up there. Like, what is that about? Seriously. <laughs> and then the word bucket list. Yeah, it's almost like you have a world atlas in front of you, and you're putting push pins. Now, I, I mean, we all do that. Like, I did that before as well. But now, I feel that maybe we should stop doing that because countries are not objects. You know, we don't put、mm-hmm. them on a bucket list just because we. There are places that we want to go to and that we want to do a country. Like when people say doing a country, like that also like really affects、yeah. me. <laughs> It's of course like. You know, we we do we all have our preferences of where we want to go, and I acknowledge that. And some places or countries or regions do fascinate us more than others, and we do have some, I don't know, like likings for some cultures over others that we may not even know, right? So, I mean, I understand that, but like making a list of of. <laughs> 
of countries or places and like calling that calling that your bucket list and they hey this is the next place that I want to it's almost like okay where to invade next right Mm -hmm. yeah I actually like on bucket list because I find that such an interesting one because it's used so so often um (laughs) I feel like it almost gamifies travel like Mm -hmm. you were saying it turns it into this like activity of collection, which does, when you think about it, have a bit of a colonial feel to it as well. And it, it makes me think a lot about country counting as well, because country counting, I know a lot stamps, of people, yeah. like I see it in people's bios all the time, like 60 plus countries. And it always makes me think about, to go back to your point about doing a country, I always think to myself, like, no one can really do a country. Like I could go... <laughs> I could go to India 80 times and still not really have seen India. Even my own country, like I've lived here my whole life and I don't think I'll ever fully know Canada in the way that I probably should because it's just impossible to really get to know a place in its entirety and in the kind of depth and nuance that like would really mean you've done it. I mean, it's kind of interesting to think about like what does that really mean to do a country? Also, and also the way of saying it, right? It it almost mm-hmm. like feels like objectifying. You're absolutely right. When we when we travel, even even if we do make it to the places on our bucket list, when we talk about travel, like leisure travels, it's usually referred to short term travel or travel or visits, right? And how <laughs> even the so- most superficial understanding of a country, you won't be able to get like even just 5% or 1% of that like within a few days right and and then people feel that they have the authority to write about these places yeah. <laughs> and and to be an authoritative voice like oh i've traveled there so now i have the right to say something about it i mean there are certainly like very good and very ethical travel writers out there however like again back to the social media culture that i talked about everybody would be sharing something about the places they visit um they recently visited and then it's just that entitlement you know about how right it feels for us to just talk about other people's homes and comment and give our opinions on those places it's just <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we we have a lot of work to do and we all uh, need to, I mean, it's a long road of learning again and an improvement that we all need to be aware of and on board. Yeah, like I'm curious what you would say because I'm sure you, you have this struggle as well. Like I'll get invited to do interviews and people will ask me, how many countries have you been to? And it feels sometimes like I'm forced to, right. to give in to these terms that like I know I don't want to, because I'll never even give people a straight answer. I'll just be like, oh, something like this many. I'll always try to avoid it, but I never know if it's like appropriate to counter it and say, actually, I don't want to talk about that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What's your take on that? Uh, well, first of all, I have a confession to make. Like, I used to do that too. I used to have that in my bio. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because the, the the thing is, let's say when you first start your career in tourism, you kind of want to... It signals authority in a sense. It signals authority and you want people 
to like that gives you credibility as well because you are really well traveled. Otherwise, like why would people listen to you, right? However, it's not about the number of countries that you've been to. It's about how much reflection we have like on our past travels. It could be just a one-time journey. Like it could be like a one month-long journey in one country. But you may like you may get a lot more out of. Your trip because you reflect upon it and you try to learn and you do research, you know, and you try to connect with the people, or try to understand even after your trip, continue to continue to read about the country and like learn more about the culture, as opposed to a person who's traveled to sixty, seventy, eighty countries, but you know it doesn't mean anything. It's like. A lot of people love quoting Mark Twain's "Travel is a what? <laughs> travel is fatal to bigotry,、uh, to prejudice." No, travel itself is not fatal to bigotry. It's the reflection upon your own travels and your willingness to learn and research that will help you grow from、uh, from prejudice and so on. One of the things that I wanted to point out, maybe later in this discussion, is some of the words are problematic in 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 themselves. But then, they're so widely used that you're kind of forced to use them too. Within this industry, you you have to. So the the word destination, for example. Yeah,、um, it's I. I struggle with that one so much. Yeah. <laughs> so the word destination, because as soon as you talk about. You use the word destination. You're viewing a country as a product of tourism.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. When we talk about our destinations, immediately we're looking at countries or places from the perspective of a tourist. Destiny. Our destinations are other people's homes, and that's you know that we all, many of us know nowadays, and all aware of that. And Still, like we cannot really retire this word because the entire country, sorry, the entire industry, the entire world is using has been using this term. So, when you don't use this term, people don't even know what you're talking about, almost, right? So, so it is it is very tricky. Even Rice Travel Institute, as an organization, we started、um, a conscious travel series, like a, a series of short courses. That are specific to、uh, locations, and it's like one hour course on、uh, courses on Guatemala, on、um, New Zealand, on Bhutan. We wanted to offer an alternative to travel guides, like the traditional or mainstream travel guides, and we want to take our students on a deep dive into the history, culture, political, social context of、uh, the those countries nowadays, and how. Like how the context is affecting the most vulnerable communities,、uh, in in those places, and we started off by calling them destination courses, you know, and it's still hard to move away from that because that's the language that the entire industry uses. So we we have to go along as well. However, internally and with our students, when we get a chance to talk more deeply about these things, we want to. Be able to have conversations about the nuances, like when we talk about our、uh, conscious travel series nowadays, we would call them place-based courses. Yeah, 
after our emailing back and forth, and you you had mentioned the word destination in our email thread, and I started to think about it like a lot. And in my own writing, I was like, how do I avoid using this word? And I'm finding like the best way to avoid it is to just say it like with different phrasing, like say the name of the place versus say the saying name of the place. using the word use destination. The word place, yeah. Yeah, like Absolutely. it's sort of just like you can omit it by just using other neutral language is what I'm finding. I wanted to touch on something else you mentioned, which is that a lot of these words like have to do with how tourists are viewing a place like through their own lens. And this is something I find with my own travel writing. Sometimes I'll make a point to say everything I'm telling you is through my perspective mm -hmm. as a visitor in this place. I don't know everything about this place. This is just what my experience was. Um, because that's, I don't know, I, I personally feel like that's the best you can do because because we are tourists, so we have to acknowledge that we are. But I guess what you're saying is it's about just being more responsible about the actual words that we use in representing our own tourist experiences. Absolutely. So there are words that we need to be mindful of um, when we write. And also telling your readers that these are observations through my own lens, you know, when I travel and it should by no means generalize whatever phenomenon that you were trying to depict in your writing. There's also another way of doing it, which is in your travel writing or like during your travels that you're going to write about, connect with the locals and try to bring their voices in into your writing as well. You know, you can you can include quotes, you can have like, you know, short not as official as interviews, but like you can if there's a way to record part of your conversations with permission to share their point of views, like their perspectives on, on things that you observe, then that would make your travel writing a lot less subjective because sometimes like, we make assumptions about how things are in the country that we travel to. And even like with all the news, like all the, all the news that are going on that we read about I'll give you a perfect example of the uh, of the mine train in the Yucatan in Mexico. It is a hugely controversial project, and from the point of view of a social justice advocate, like of course I think, yeah, I know that there's gonna be like a lot of negative impact on the local communities having such a big like development, like infrastructure development project, and they're gonna destroy a lot of cultural artifacts and things like that. And we're going to bring over tourism to all these places, right? However, when I got to talk to um, one of our partners that work closely, who work closely with indigenous communities, uh, local communities in the, in the area, they actually say that they really welcome the project because they can see the economic benefits, they can see for the region to kind of open up to the world. And, you know, sometimes we have a lot of assumptions about what is good for the locals and what is right for the locals, but it doesn't necessarily mean that's how they think. Of course, there's also the, well, education also comes into play, right? Like how much are they actually informed about how they're going to be ne negative impacted? But still their voices, import, uh, their voices are important. 
Mm -hmm. Bringing in other perspectives for sure. Absolutely. I mean, I say. <laughs> oh, go ahead. <laughs> I saw a ton of examples of like what worst we we could consider retiring, but like I also want to be mindful of our time because that's a lot. We when we talk about like empower the locals, like what is exotic, what is authentic, yeah. oh, you know, yeah. like those are like, and also there are so many other problematic expressions as well. For example, in all these tourism marketing materials, you see like nature or countryside paradise and like pristine beaches and like as harmless as they seem we are basically again like dismissing the fact that people do live there and hey if you have a pristine beach that's most likely because it is a privatized beach which also which means that like local people are barred from being able to enjoy the natural resources that they are entitled to. Yeah. Using the word paradise, it's like, no, well, do you know that there are actually people who live there and who actually are like fighting social injustices every day? And because of our presence as tourists, you know, that there, there could be injustices that got exacerbated because of tourism projects in those countries. Right. So so we need to be cognizant of those things um, before we even choose to use these words. <laughs> yeah. Something I do myself is I always think about like, for lack of a better phrase, I'll say to myself, does this word sound like too much? Am I being too descriptive? And a lot of the words that are really um, problematic in travel, I find, are those sort of over the top phrases like paradise or untouched beaches yeah that's the sales and marketing language right it is you're trying to sell and I work in marketing so I'm like I know what these words are I'm I'm just gonna keep it neutral <laughs> because if it's too neutral and then all your competitors are using the over-the-top words then you're but I also wonder sometimes because like I find when I read especially travel content that uses those kinds of words, the problematic aspect aside, sometimes it feels like they're trying too hard. I find I don't believe what I'm reading because mm -hmm. it just doesn't feel like natural language. And it doesn't feel genuine. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. I don't find I respond very well to travel writing that is that over the top. That's right. Yeah, but then, however, um, most consumers, that's the kind of language that most consumers buy. <laughs> yeah, and are used to, yeah. So it's pretty clear that the language we use when we write about or talk about our travels has an impact. I know that personally, it's been a learning curve over several years to sort of unlearn these common words and phrases. And it's it's a journey that I am still on. I'm still learning words that I should be avoiding. And I think... Over time, we'll probably find more words that we should be removing because language is always evolving. So it's not easy work. I wanted to ask, are there words that you're finding you're struggling to retire yourself? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, as I just said, um, destination. It also, it took me some time to stop using the word explore, discover, because we're so used to using those words, right? And, and then all of a sudden, I was told not to use the word explore. And then I stopped using it at 
all, like you know, completely, <laughs> while not understanding that well, it's actually okay to use the word explore when you say like you know explore partnership opportunities, explore like you know what this research topic may mean, or you know you can you can still use that word, but not in the sense of explore exploring a place or like discovering a place, you know things like that. The word empower is difficult to. To move away from because um, it it is the language basically it is the language that most nonprofits use and when we say empower women women empowerment children empowerment refugee empowerment the way I understand is when you use the word empower for example it all, almost implies a power hierarchy it's like oh you are in this position that you. You want to share, like you want to give power to some people, but then, hey, we took away their power in the first place. It's time to return that power. It's very like it's this the white savior complex that that comes in through this work as well. That I'm trying to find a better term for that, but it's sometimes it's hard because. There is no equivalent out there. It seems maybe in a few years we'll come up with a better term, but right now, for definitely, <laughs> what empower is is tricky. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I find that too, and I also find I struggle, like you said, with explore. Yeah, it's just so commonly used, and sometimes it's like I can't find any synonyms to use in its place, or if I I can, it's like I'm using because sometimes I'll say like travel. Or, yeah, there's, there's just not that many like <laughs> other words that you can use, and so it's hard because it's like exactly. I don't want to sound repetitive by using the same word over and over again, and so sometimes it's so tempting to say explore because it's a way to like change up what yeah. you're saying. Yeah. Oh, we can talk all day about this because Katie know. and I talk all <laughs> the time about even the word responsible tourism. Sometimes we're like, is that even the right word? Exactly, which is why, which is why I'm not sure if you know about this, but Rise is actually an acronym for Responsible, Impactful, Sustainable, and Ethical. Because, like you know, when we started, we also didn't know like which words would best describe the kind of work that we do, and there's no there's no such word that is like all encompassing. Uh, right now, everybody believes that regenerative travel, like the word regenerative. Is the term. However, again, there's a lot of regenerative travel washing out there yeah. as well, which is doing the the movement a disservice. I mean, in a perfect world, we wouldn't need to use these words. Like in a perfect world, and this is me just being so hopeful for the future. But in a perfect world, we wouldn't have to decipher between different types of travel, and like all travel would. Have more of a positive impact. So maybe that's the goal that we get to a place where we don't have to use any of these descriptors and we can just say travel. It's hard because I think like a lot of people don't or feel uncomfortable acknowledging how unjust systems of power are reflected in tourism. It's sort of one of those realities that people don't want to face, especially when tourism for them is just their one week escape from their mm -hmm. hectic lives and their mm -hmm. work lives. It's so complicated. Like we find it all the time. Whenever Katie and I bring up travel privilege, people are just so upset because they don't want to associate <laughs> their travels with or their vacation with this just like dose of reality 
it's hard to even understand why this is such a hard concept to grasp because we we are those who have <laughs> who have the means to travel to some someone else's homes and like a lot of a lot of locals may not may never have had the chance to travel outside of you know their own country and all of a sudden we feel so entitled and we disembark like we land there and then we just look for things that would please us you know that would give us pleasure and that's a concept that need to be deconstructed because we need to start understanding that when we go to a place it's not our destination. It's it's someone else's home, and they are the host, and we are the visitors, and we are uninvited visitors sometimes, right? So we we really need to understand what our place is in 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 this world as we move around, as we navigate, and just try to use or leverage our power and privilege to to do better things, more ethical things in the more ethical way i guess i think this is a very very i I, i'm loving this conversation and this is such an important topic and we uh, at rise are currently working on putting together an ebook on decolonizing travel we don't want to come across as the authority but we are we are learning as well and we just want to compile resources for anyone who want to learn and for anyone who whom this would resonate with and uh and provide them with some resources so that they know where to look and where to dive deeper so yeah we're very excited about that project and a lot of what we talked about today actually um actually is included in the um in the ebook as well to wrap up when it comes to sharing our travels through blogs, through social media, or even just through chatting with friends or with family, there is more to it than just language. We also communicate about our travels through images and video and other mediums as well. So I'm curious if you have tips for how people can share their travels in a more responsible way, regardless of the medium. So whether it be language, images, video, what can we do to do better? Yeah, I definitely would love to share a little bit about what I would do. Um, I certainly would not call them tips. <laughs> again, like you know, I I don't want to come across as like being authoritative in this uh, at all. So I guess first of all, like cultivating awareness and having willingness to unlearn and understand that is a journey and that it's okay to admit <laughs> our past mistakes like you know what i what i just did at the beginning of this podcast interview it's only through our mistakes that we can learn how to do better right so whether you're a travel writer or an organization or a business and even rise they're all words that we used to use and that we no longer use because we've learned why they are offensive and then when we choose our language, always ask ourselves if, you know, whether it carries colonial undertones, is the word, or just basically what I'm writing in general, do the doing the place or the people justice? Um, who could be harmed by the way I write and the words I use? 
whose voices are left out as well and who is left out of what the words uh, represent. So, so by constantly asking ourselves questions and checking out our writing, I think that would be, that would be helpful. Uh, seek to decolonize our mindsets in general, because Erin, you just said that it's, sometimes it's not just about tourism. It's it's about everything, our lifestyle, the way we think, and it's the way we think that we carry with us when we travel, right? So it's not just about travel itself, but like really our mindset and our understanding of the world, and that's something that we can all do better. And then practically rather than saying discover you know i usually simply say visit rather than <laughs> saying authentic we could say traditional you know um rather than doing something to help or to empower the locals what if we just what if we just like you know completely paraphrase that and say just emphasize on the respect and the opportunity to learn from the locals and see how how we can contribute to projects that they lead. It's about level, leveling the playing field. It's about like returning the power to the locals. It's, it's about like trying to remove ourselves from the center. And then, yeah, rather than saying Burma, say Myanmar. <laughs> I made this mistake like 12 or 15 years ago myself, not understanding why it was so, such a big deal, but it is a big deal when we think about all the systemic oppressions that happened during the colonial era and the aftermath and the legacy, you know, it's it's also about respecting people's identity. Yeah, so there are a number of ways that, that we can all do better as we uh, document our travels through writing, through our images, and, well, ethical uh, travel photography would be a completely, you know, would be a, a separate conversation. But, yeah, when... We just need to realize how much power we have when we when we write. Well, thank you. That is great advice. I really love how you phrased that. Okay, so Vincy, we wanted to end on a lighter note and get some of your personal advice about where you live. So I know you're based in the New York area. Um, so we'd love to hear some tips that you have about personal favorites, things to do, where to eat, galleries, oh. parks. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> wow. Okay. So I, uh, I live in New Jersey, United States. Uh, I've been here for about 10 years now on the indigenous, indigenous land of Mansilla Nape. And uh, I am originally from Hong Kong. So I wouldn't say, well, I definitely am not a local and I wouldn't say that I know a lot about where I live. Um, especially when I go out, I tend to go to Manhattan, <laughs> you know, hang out with my friends in Manhattan. So, well, you you know, Manhattan <laughs> advice. I don't think anyone would be upset about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, like, apart from the biggest museums, I, I really love Tenement Museum. You know? <gasps> Me too. Yes, like, I tell you know, <laughs> everyone to go to the Tenement. It's so great. It's so great. Like, you can really learn about the first immigrant stories, and it's just fascinating. And then in terms of where to eat, uh, I happen to live very close to the Korea town of New Jersey, uh, which is Palisades Park. And there's so much great food. And on, on one street called the Broad Street, you feel like that you're in Seoul. <laughs> uh. like with all the Korean like signs in Korean and so on. And there are so many like great, delicious restaurants. 
see that I avoided using the word authentic. <laughs> but yeah, like if you if you chance to come over to the side of the river, um, definitely just like, you know, really feel the the presence of this big immigrant population here is just really, it's very vibrant. So yeah, I mean, I can talk for the entire day. (laughs) (laughs) Well, these are great tips. My partner and I live right on the edge of Koreatown in Toronto. And my partner Lucas is a huge fan of Korean food. Me too. (laughs) We haven't, he has not been to New York City. And this is something that it's my goal to get Lucas to New York City because I've been a couple times and I just know he will love it. So my goal is to get there and we will go out for Korean food. Please definitely let me know. I would I would love I will. to meet up. Yes. I would love yes, to. Yes, let's do that. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the show. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to share it with a fellow traveler. Make sure you're following us on all your favorite podcast apps. And if you're feeling extra generous, you can leave us a five-star review or support us on Patreon. Anything you can do to support this show will help to foster meaningful change throughout the travel industry. Curious Tourism, the Responsible Travel Podcast, is written and hosted by me, Erin Hines, and it's produced and edited by Katie Lohr in Canada's Toronto area. Our theme music is called Night Stars by Wolf Saga, David R. Miracle, and the Chippewa Travelers. If you want to reach out to us, check the show notes for all the info you need. I'll see you in two weeks, but in the meantime, stay curious. <laughs>